everybody, and welcome to the Sound One Four podcast. Um, and welcome, Chris. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, uh, you recently uh, got a new book out, uh, Bound by War. Uh, I I love the title, by the way, because oh, uh, it uh, really encapsulates the idea of the book, the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, first off, uh, can you introduce yourself as an introduction? Sure thing. Yeah. No, my name is Chris Capazola. I teach uh, American history um, at, at MIT, um, where mm-hmm. I've been teaching for a while. And uh, like you said, I just published this book, Bound by War, How the United States and the Philippines Built America's First Pacific Century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you explain uh, more about the book, like how uh, the Philippines and the U.S. started uh, the history behind that? Yeah, so I mean, I got an, I got started on this book thinking it would be uh, a small book, and it turned out to be a really big one, um, because mm-hmm. the United States and the Philippines have been connected for over a century, um, and that's what I wanted to show, um, and to show it for people who, who know it well, right, including hundreds of thousands of Filipino Americans, um, yeah. but also for people who just don't know this history or, or never learned it in school. Mm-hmm. So the book is is partly about the relationship between these two countries in terms of war, right? And the way that fighting wars either against each other or with each other um, has really structured their their relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also has a big impact on uh, on military service. Right? That Filipinos have been serving in the U.S. Armed Forces for for, for decades, right? Yeah. And, and and that history is something I really wanted to tell. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the history of the U S and Philippines is often overlooked. Like I was in, uh, AP U S history in high school and we really didn't discuss it that much in that class. And, uh, now you've written a book about it and I hope people will learn more about the history. Um, and why do you think that that part of history is overlooked so much? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a couple ways to answer that question, right? Like in, in one hand, uh, it's overlooked. Um, and I think that's the fault of, of teachers um, and um, officials and other people who don't treat it as important. Um, on the one hand, it's also forgotten. Um, and that's by ordinary Americans who, who just don't want to pay attention to it, don't want to mm-hmm. explore this chapter of our history, which does not always uh, show America in a good light. Um, but I also think it's it's also hidden in plain sight is the way I describe it. Right? That in fact, actually, a lot of people do know um, that these two countries are connected. They have close family relationships. They've got political connections. Um, and, you know, I think I want to just kind of weave that back into American history. Yeah, uh, because uh, you tell in the book how it's mostly a one-sided relationship between uh, the U.S. and the Philippines with the U.S. having the power uh, during most of it. And it's left, uh, some of the people like Philippine, uh, people at, uh, having a bad reputation with the U S right. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, certainly the United States exercised more power in that relationship. It was, mm-hmm. uh, it's not a even partnership, right. Um, for sure. Uh, you know, I try to document different ways in which that plays out. 
both in the Philippines, um, but also in the United States, right, as, as Filipinos migrated to, to America. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I think there's also ways in which uh, Filipinos challenged that discrimination, right, um, and, you know, sort of fought for, for equality, uh, kind of demanded their rights, and kind of putting that part of the story in there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, uh, why was the, why was their U.S. presence in the first place in the Philippines? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated part of the story. And, and I think that's part of why um, it's so complicated that sometimes that's why people don't actually, um, you know, learn too much about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but uh, the United States did not set out to a- acquire the Philippines as a colony, right? um, that we were involved in a war with Spain. Um, and that war was mostly fought in the Caribbean, mostly mm-hmm. about Cuba. Right? But Spain had colonies all around the world, including in the Pacific, um, in the Philippines, and Guam. Uh, so this and, was uh, around the 1800s? Right? Yeah, in 1898, yeah. Um, 1898. This, this war began. Uh, and the war with Spain is really short. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's over in four months, um, and it's a clear victory for the United States. Um, but the problem is that once they've done that, um, they have intervened in uh, almost without necessarily intending to, intervened in the effort of Filipinos to win their independence from Spain. So a lot of Filipinos thought in 1898 that their country was going to become independent. Yeah. Right? And they even turned to the United States and said, look, you've, you know, you declared independence from, from Britain in 1776. We're going to mm-hmm. do the same thing now. Um, and then the United States chose, and I, I think this was a, a fateful moment, right? They chose not to recognize Philippine independence, but in fact, to colonize the country. And it was a colony for 48 years. Yeah. And they used it uh, as a military base, right? In some aspects. Yeah. So very, very quickly, um, the United States understands by about 1905 that, um, that this is going to be an important way, uh, an important military facility for facing Japan. Mm-hmm. Right? In 1905, Japan wins this huge war against Russia. Um, and becomes this sort of global power. Um, and at that moment, uh, America understands that this military connection is going to be important. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to look at that in the book. I thought, well, I'll, I'll write about it up through World War II, up through 1946, when the war is over. Um, yeah. And the country becomes independent. But in fact, actually, that military connection remains. Right? There mm-hmm. are military bases there all the way until the 1990s and troops there still today. Yeah. And uh, in your press release, I read that uh, William Howard Taft, uh, John J. Pershing, Dwight Eisenhower, they all uh, trained there. Uh, What was the purpose behind that? Well, um, William Howard Taft uh, started out there as a as a kind of colonial official. Right. Um, And thought that if he did a really good job running the Philippines, that it would help him become president, Um, which, in fact, he did. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and other figures who had military experience there, that was in part because the Philippines was one of the, the biggest places, uh, most important places for the U.S. military during peacetime. Right? So John J. Pershing um, served in, in the Philippines, um, where in fact, actually, he was involved in uh, a lot of campaigns against um, Philippine in, insurgents and um, some of the Muslim soldiers in the southern Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dwight D. Eisenhower played a key role in organizing what would eventually become the Philippine Army. 
Um, so, so one after another, generation after generation, um, American uh, soldiers and sailors have actually spent a lot of time in the Philippines. Yeah. And um, we, we talked over email uh, for a while and you explained that the 714 actually has a significant part in the book. Uh, can, can you explain that? Yeah, no, I, uh, I was excited to, to kind of bring yeah. the, the global story of the U.S. and the Philippines and kind of connect it to, to the Southern California story. Yeah. Right? Um, and for me, I think that entry point is, is actually in, in Long Beach, um, where uh, there's uh, U.S. naval facilities, um, and particularly in the early 20th century, really big one um, in San Pedro, mm-hmm. uh, where Filipino Navy sailors um, were, were often stationed. Right. And it's important to remember that. Um, for a lot of the 20th century, um, Asian immigrants were barred from entering the United States, um, except if they were Filipinos, or um, if, uh, in particular, if they were Filipinos in the U.S. armed forces. So that's one thing that's happening. Right? So that makes it uh, why, why, was, uh, why were so many uh, immigrants barred from coming in? Well, you know, there were sort of decades of, of anti-Asian uh, sort of prejudice um, starting even in as early as the gold rush days in California, right? Um, mm-hmm. Competition for land and, and labor. Um, and this led to, you know, local laws, but even federal laws, right? starting with the Chinese Immigration Act of 1882 and, and then just expanding, expanding from there. Um, but Filipinos were an exception to this, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and naval service was a way that Filipinos could migrate to the U.S. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that this small community that starts in Long Beach in the 1920s gets, mm-hmm. becomes sort of the core for bigger and bigger uh, migrations as the generations move on. Yeah, so they were basically one of the first uh, Asian Americans to come to the U.S. and it paved the way for many generations of that. As yeah, well. absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a, there's sort of good kind of accounts of what it was like to live, um, you know, sort of in Filipino communities in Long Beach and, or nearby in, in the 1920s, um, you know, close enough to Los Angeles to kind of make connections, to kind of leave the Navy, find new jobs. Um, uh, and then over time, by the 50s and 60s, when, you know, this becomes a more kind of suburban area, um, you know, there are people who move into kind of some of the new suburbs in, in the area and settle down. Mm-hmm. And so currently, um, is there still a good connection between the U.S. and the Philippines with uh, both the presidents? Well, uh, if you look at the reality, yes. Um, if you just listen to the rhetoric, um, not so much. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, uh, you know, the headlines have been captured in the last couple of years by some tensions between the United States um, uh, and uh, with President Donald Trump and, and the Philippines with President Rodrigo Duterte. Mm-hmm. Um, and Duterte has been critical of the United States, has advocated closer ties not to the U.S. but to China, and, and wants to uh, suspend or, or you know, even break um, a military agreement that we have called the EDCA, EDSA, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that... As those headlines, um, you know, the talk captures the headlines, but the, the relationship is, I think, is still really still, still sound, right? And, and really quite close. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, and you talk about how the, the, the Pacific uh, century, that the first Pacific century was uh, back in the 1900s, 
And with China now having an even worse uh, reputation with the Americans, what does the uh, second Pacific century look like? Well, you know, you're asking uh, a historian to predict the future, which, uh, (laughs) you know, which is hard. But but I do think we can say with some confidence, right, that that the U.S. and the Philippines will remain connected in the future. partly because of these military uh, reasons I just explained, but also all the other reasons, right? Um, that the connections of Americans and Filipinos as people are in some ways more important than the connections of the United States and the Philippines as, as governments or, or armies. Um, so I think those connections are, are not going away. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, uh, you know, China will, will, be the, the, will be the challenge um, um, for sure, along with other issues, including and climate change and, and other kind of social and public health issues that are going to keep emerging. Uh, but, the, but the U.S. will continue to engage in Asia from the Philippines. Right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, um, you know, it's kind of a, a home base and kind of a uh, perspective that they're bringing. Yeah, because the U.S. has always had a lot of trade in that area uh, with the Asian countries in general. And so that continues to happen today. Yeah, I mean, the, the trade connections are important, but also so, so are migration connections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, including um, what are called remittances, right? Sending money home, right? Um, but things like that, that really kind of tie migrants um, between the two countries together. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about your previous book, uh, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War I and the Making of an American Citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what were some of the changes that occurred during that time to the American people? Yeah. So the first book that I did was actually, um, you know, this, this one that I did is about a whole century. The first mm-hmm. book was about, um, you know, 19 months of American history. And this, yeah. the, the first world war, this kind of crucial moment. And in that book, I'm not looking at like what's happening on the battlefield. Um, there are plenty of good books about that already. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in how this really brief moment of history transformed American politics and, and political culture. Right? In particular, and this was for many Americans the moment when they first encountered and engaged the federal government um, and in its full power. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You have a war going on, the government is making all these demands on people, um, and they're experiencing um, sort of political life in, in whole new ways. Yeah, and at the time, uh, the U.S. were wasn't really involved in other countries, uh, you know, politics and were mostly just, uh, trying to, uh, deal with their own problems, their own issues. What I, I don't think that's so true. Right. So we're not involved in European politics, right? yeah. but if you, but if you ask someone from Latin America um, and yeah. they would say, actually, America is very involved um, in, in this time period. Right. So, yeah. Really in the Western Hemisphere, but you're right. And in, in, this was the first time that the U.S. sends troops to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly the first time that we send large numbers of soldiers anywhere in the world. Okay. So, uh, um, so what was the previous interactions, like you said, in Latin America? Uh, what were some of those interactions that occurred? Well, right around the same time period, right? The, mm-hmm. um, the United States... Uh, you know, right at the turn of the 20th century, the United States becomes involved in sort of small scale, um, and sometimes not that small, uh, occupations uh, of different countries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what 
uh, this is the intervention that gives us access to uh, to Panama, right, and to the construction of the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States occupies uh, uh, the Dominican Republic in Haiti um, for for years, right? Restructures their government, restructures their economy, um, and of course, the U.S. Uh, is deeply involved in Cuba. It's never a formally a territory of the United States, but but we are, you know, sort of intervening in in their public life uh, for decades. Mm-hmm. And what uh, what made the U.S. Uh, declare war uh, to get into World War One? You know, I I hear that it was the sinking of the of the I forget the name of the ship. Uh, the Lusitania. Recall, yeah, the Lusitania. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so you know, the war begins in Europe in 1914, and the United States is very careful not to get uh, involved officially, mm-hmm. but the U.S. is indirectly supporting one side more than another. Right, we're lending more money to Britain and France. We're selling selling ammunition to Britain and France. Uh, and in 1915, uh, Germany sinks this ship, the Lusitania. Yeah. But it's important to remember, we don't immediately go into the war. Right? Mm-hmm. It takes another two years almost before the U.S. enters the war, um, uh, by which point it, you know, the attacks on the United States were, were becoming more frequent. Um, and that's what draws the U.S. into the conflict. Okay. And um, I also want to talk to you about uh, World War II, which was uh, also probably one of the most famous wars in history. Um, And that war, um, it's recorded in a lot of documentaries, and it's probably the first time that uh, videographers uh, documented a war and such type. Uh, What kind of impact did that make uh, by having footage of actual wars? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... uh... The, we don't actually have as much um, sort of documentary footage of of combat itself in the Second World War. Right? Mm-hmm. We we have certainly a lot of sort of video um, and film film coverage, right? Um, but um, you know it was just too dangerous, right, for a lot of cameramen to be sort of uh, you know kind of uh, filming combat as it was happening, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think it necessarily changed how people fought. It certainly changed how people on the home front understood the war, right? Yeah. That you'd had a revolution by this point in terms of media, right? People um, went to the movies um, in the 1940s the way that, you know, we would watch television now. You just kind of, you know, it was five cents. You just turned it on, you know, show mm-hmm. up at a movie theater and, you know, watch whatever. Um, and so they were used to seeing the news um, through film. They were used to that. Um, at that point, the film companies and the government still censored or restricted uh, images that, of, that were really violent, um, gruesome, that showed American soldiers um, uh, in, in difficult positions or even dead American soldiers would have not been things that Americans saw. Um, okay. you know, that was much later phenomenon. Yeah. And um, speaking of like World War II, uh, the end of World War I uh, was... Uh, declared with the Treaty of Versailles, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that limited Germany's power um, significantly. But what led to the rise of Germany uh, after that? Well, uh, man, that's a big question. Right? Um, I think uh, the it's certainly the case, right, that the Treaty of Versailles was 
um, was harsh on Germany, right? Um, yeah. It restricted their, it basically kept them from having any military forces at all. Um, it restricted their economic position. Um, it, it, it demanded financial reparations from them that kind of really harmed their economy. So a lot of times people will say that um, in some ways the First World War caused the second, right? Um, yeah. Or that it was one big, you know, one big long war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually don't, I don't know if I believe that, right? Um, because for two reasons. One, the Second World War started in Asia, not in Europe, right? It starts mm-hmm. um, between China and Japan in 1937, right? Um, yeah. And so I think that leaves that part out. And then also, I think um, people had a chance in the 1930s to, to stop World War II, to stop Hitler, um, and, and they didn't. Um, and I think saying, oh, you know, it was destined to happen because of mm-hmm. choices made in the 1910s, I think, Let's let those people off the hook a little bit too much. What was the UN created before the uh, before the Second World War? Or no, so the, was that so the, the Treaty of Versailles creates the the League of Nations, which oh, is yeah, kind of yeah. like the first you know the first attempt at that. Right, mm-hmm. the United States never joins it, um, uh, which is and it doesn't have nearly the power that the United Nations does. Uh, the UN is created in in 1945 um, by. Uh, and the U.S. is really in the lead in forming it, and in part trying to ensure that whatever comes out of World War II is going to be more effective than the League of Nations that had come out of World War One. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at the at the beginning of World War Two, uh, before that, Germany increases power and they start taking over, uh, expanding uh, to different countries, and the the allies really didn't uh interfere with that in the beginning why is that um yeah i mean um germany in part just starts breaking the terms of the treaty of versailles right it mm-hmm. occupies territory that it had been excluded from it builds starts a military re- build, yeah. builds a military all these things and each mm-hmm. one was a a step that um most of the other European powers, and including the United States too, um, felt that uh, it was not enough to trick to risk a war. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, and in part that is a calculated step by step project of the Nazis. Um, in part, it's also the 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 domestic pressures that each of those countries are facing at home in terms of, you know, they have domestic populations that don't want to go to war again. They've just lived through a war with Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, they're in hindsight, um, we call, we call it appeasement, right? And we say they should have, you know, they they should have stopped Hitler sooner. Um, There were, there were political constraints, uh, military constraints that, that kept them at each moment from doing that. Okay. Yeah, that makes uh that makes more sense. I, I didn't really understand it at first. Yeah, no, I think it's worth remembering, right, that most Americans, um and certain also most British, most French people, if you asked them in the nineteen thirties, they would have said World War One was a terrible mistake. We never should have done it. Mm-hmm. And so if if all your voters think that, uh, it's gonna be hard to convince them to to challenge Germany again. Right, yeah. To challenge, you know, when they make a, a small step here and a small step there, and mm-hmm. and the Nazis understood that and, and pushed um, uh, whenever whenever they could. 
Yeah. And, I, and, uh, when world war two began, the U S was, uh, was hesitant in really joining the war because of what happened in world war two or world war one. Um, sorry, but, uh, Pearl Harbor occurred and that, uh, really brought them into the war. Uh, yeah. correct. Yeah, that is, yeah, that is correct. And so, you know, really from, from 19 September, 1939 and when, Germany invades Poland until December 7th, 1941. Um, the United States is not, um, you know, is not officially at war, although uh, it's also not neutral, right? Uh, the U.S., you know, it's not like World War I. The U.S. is really actively trying to support uh, Britain, Britain mm-hmm. and France, and particularly Britain after, you know, once the Blitz comes and they're really fighting alone. Um, and Britain is bankrupt. Britain needs, you know, needs weapons. Uh, the U.S. is really kind of propping them up. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it is only the, the attack of Pearl Harbor that brings the U.S. officially into war on, on both fronts. Mm-hmm. And World War II is uh, fought differently than previous wars because of the introduction of uh, a lot of new technology like tanks and airplanes. Uh, what, what led to that kind of advancement in, in the war like uh, during that time? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, a lot of those military technologies had been there during the First World War, right? Um, mm-hmm. Tanks and planes, for example. Um, but the scale of them, the, the, the you know their their abilities, um, and just even the sheer number of them increases by World War II, right? Um, and on the the aerial front, for example, you know the the the, the breakdown of norms that would have made sort of bombing civilians you know, um, unjust, right, or immoral, and that, that breaks down on both sides, right? And so you start to see the large-scale bombing of civilian populations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is in part what then um, makes it possible for the use of atomic weapons at the end of the war. Yeah. Right? Um, but a lot of these technologies are, um, you know, are created because, um, because the, the warring powers pour enormous amounts of money and time and expertise into them. Right. Um, yeah. they, don't, they don't just come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of research. And uh, you explained uh, or you talked about the atomic wars that are atomic bombs at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I, I think that the the U.S. was pretty much uh, winning the war. And uh, why did they choose to drop the bomb on Japan, even yeah, though that- it was kind of their advantage? But. Yeah, it's, um, I always say that it's not, um, but that's a question that, that's, uh, that's our question from, Mm -hmm. from looking back in hindsight about why they chose to drop the bomb. Um, in some ways the, there never, there never was a choice about it, right. Um, that, you know, uh, the bomb was built to be dropped. Yeah. They built it because they made it right. Mm -hmm. Um, to, you know, not to turn it into a joke, right? But you know, you don't bake a cake and not eat it, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, this was the, the logics of of development, the logic of of first use. All of that was was kind of built into the process from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, were there moments where a different, you know, where that choice could have been could have been inserted, where people could have realized they were making a choice? Mm-hmm. Probably, right? Um, there were a few dissenting voices, particularly by atomic scientists at the very last minute, um, once they, after they tested it um, in New Mexico, before they used it in Japan. 
there was some hesitation once the scientists in particular understood how dangerous it was. Mm-hmm. And that was only even some of the scientists, right? Um, yeah. And certainly not, not many in the military leadership who hesitated over its use. Mm-hmm. And they, they uh, dropped two bombs, in fact, right? And yeah. was that around the same time or same day or was it uh, so the separated? First, the first was dropped in Hiroshima in, on August 6th um, and the second in Nagasaki on, on August 9th. Um, okay. In between, um, you know, there's not a lot of, um, uh, you know, the, an awful lot of things happen, but, but, the, but one thing that doesn't happen is Japan doesn't immediately surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they do that basically right after the dropping of the, the second atomic bomb. Okay. So that declares the end of World War II right there? Yeah, that, that, you know, Japan surrenders in August and officially, you know, the war comes to an end in, in September. Um, um, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the last question I want to ask you is, uh, why is uh, history so important to learn, especially now? Just not, e- not even just American history, but world history. Why is it so important to learn? Um, you know, I think... So there's this famous line that people repeat all the time that where they say, um, you know, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that's only half right. Because right? the other part of that is those who do not study history don't get the chance to repeat it. Right. Yes. And that there are all kinds of, you know, all kinds of good yeah. things and important things that happened in the past that we should learn about, um, you know, learn lessons of people who, you know, the people who did accomplish things, right, that we might also want to accomplish in our own lives, right? And we can mm-hmm. look, look to the, the past, kind of see how they did it, right? Um, and we face enormous challenges in the future, right? Social, economic, environmental, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, the, to, to solve those problems, we need tools in the toolkit, not just from 2020, but from, from our whole human history. Yeah. That that's one of the reasons why I love history so much personally, because you get to learn how humans lived before and with written text or with video, you get to see um how they lived, how they interacted, what their uh failures were, what their successes were, and you could find a lot of similarities and differences and and everything really. And sometimes it does repeat itself. You know, history does repeat itself sometimes, and it's uh, it's it's fun to learn. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I always also say, you know, why um, why restrict your group of friends to those who just happen to be living on the planet at the same time that you are, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Chris, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate absolutely. it. All yeah. right, thanks, thanks for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast, and we'll talk to you guys later. Okay. Bye, Chris. Bye. Also, make sure to check out Chris's new book, Bound by War. I've left a link in the description on Amazon so you guys can get it. And it's a great book. We've, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast. But on the book, in the book, you'll really go in, in depth with uh, the U.S. and the Philippines. So make sure to check out the book. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Peace.